welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. The conversation today is with Jan Gullikson, a professor at KTH in Stockholm, Sweden, where he's also vice president for digitalization, and he plays various other national and international leadership roles. He was previously, too, dean of school for seven years. And here we talk mostly about his experiences and thoughts on middle management and academic leadership, something that's of relevance to all of us because we all play leadership roles in various ways. He shares his personal development as a leader, as well as some practical strategies, many of which draw on his background in theatre and drama. So listen out for a really interesting example using improv theatre, for example, for PhD supervisors. We touch on a range of other issues as well, including the nature of academic freedom, building organisational values, the importance of creating two-way trust, what makes good role models, the problems with meetings, the nature of two in working too much and much more. The audio quality isn't as good as it could be, but Jan's great. Jan, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I usually start off just asking people just to give a little bit of background, just very short, just to orient people to where you're coming from. Yes, and uh, sort of professionally, I'm uh, working at KTH, Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. I'm uh, a professor in human-computer interaction. Um, I've been there for about 10 years now, and uh, before that, I spent 25 years at Uppsala University, just north of Stockholm. Uh, So that's a bit of me. I uh, do, uh, apart from my research and teaching in HCI, I'm also right now the vice president of digitalization at our university, uh, which is an interesting role that we can talk a little bit uh, about later on. And also I work for the Swedish government and for the European Commission on a few different different things in relations to uh, uh, how to transform what we're doing uh, in HI and see if it can have an impact on politics. All of those roles are uh, – we, we can talk about them now, actually, because they're, they're all very strategic roles that, that yeah, are um, about trying to impact policy, whether it's at a governmental level in, uh, in Sweden or at the European level and also now doing it at your own institution. What's mm. the motivation for you for shifting? Because this, this is a trade-off for you because obviously this would take a lot of time. And the currency of academia is writing papers and getting publications. So you know, you're you're obviously making some choice in where you think it's valuable to spend your time. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think it's so interesting the way you put this question, because even the way you put the question uh, sort of communicates some sort of values in Absolutely. in relation yeah. to it, and and that's what I find so interesting. Um, so, um, I've been, I've been doing management roles now for the last 10 years. Um, I, I was at Uppsala university. I, I was a director of undergraduate studies there. Uh, 
but and I, I sort of liked the opportunity of being able to shape mm. the work that we were doing. Yeah. And I sort of I took a personal uh, gain in sort of also trying to help others uh, close to me and, and help them develop in a sense. So I think that that was the initial motivation for doing it. Uh, clearly, I saw at Uppsala University that, that there were limited uh, uh, opportunities of developing. I mean, I was sitting next door to my former supervisor in my PhD. So, so therefore, uh, I didn't sort of see any, any uh, opportunities of trying out much more of management roles there. Uh, so, so this was one of the motives why I moved to KDH. Mm. But interestingly enough, when I moved to KTH, I, I immediately became the head of department. It was sort of in, in, in the package that I got and got a management role of, of uh, about 45 people, um, which was a good school uh, to work with. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I did it fairly well. So then when, when I got promoted to dean uh, just uh, uh, two years after I started at KTH, which is, which is not kind of the uh, obvious way of doing things mm. since you usually uh, appoints uh, people to dean when they're sort of older in their career and mm. when they've been there lifetime but interestingly enough what happened when i was promoted as dean was that one of my former colleagues said to me jan are you going to be a dean but you're actually a good researcher <laughs> and and I, I i thought that was so fascinating because uh, uh, that showed these values that many people have saying that that uh, doing leadership or management is uh, is not uh, sort of considered considered as uh, uh, prestigious or or as good as the other things, yeah. which is very strange. Yeah. yeah, and my question was framed that way, just reflecting uh, more the values that are embodied in the metrics, the standard metrics by which academics generally are measured. You know, so that yeah. I, so it's just. And I think this is just opening up discussions or, or ideas for people about different career paths and different ways of making a difference, you know, because people are often passionate about their research in terms of making a difference. And what you're reflecting there in the values underpinning your choices was making a difference in a very different way in those leadership roles. Maybe so, but you, you also need to bear in mind that with a few decades in this business, uh, you don't always do strategic choices, right? Mm. So so when I did my PhD, when I, I continued after that, we weren't talking about metrics. We didn't have Google Scholar. We went to the library and ordered others' publications and waited for waited weeks, weeks. <laughs> for them to arrive. So, so therefore, nobody was talking about citations or ranking or these things. Mm. So, so one might look at what different people did in the past that they made the right choices uh, 30 years ago when they started doing this, which now has led to them having a, a high age index uh, and so forth. But at the time that they made that choice, that wasn't something that you talked about at that point. So they were simply lucky 
to make those choices to sort of uh, start doing these things. Uh, and therefore, I believe that uh, uh, leadership roles should, would most likely in the future be valued much more. Mm. But uh, I'm not doing these things uh, simply because uh, I, I, I want it to be some sort of prestigious thing in, in, in how you value things or show that somebody's better or, or, or worse on, on these things. I, I show it because I think, I think that I have something that I can contribute. I, I think that, that uh, I want to take part in shaping how we do these things. And, and that's why you engage in it, not uh, judging at all uh, what would be strategic to to be a, a world-leading researcher, mm. whatever, whatever that means in a sense. Mm. Can we talk about the leadership a little bit more? Because one of the things that uh, people have mentioned in previous discussions is People moving into leadership roles. You talked about doing your PhD at Uppsala and then, you know, sort of working there or being head of undergraduate studies, director of undergraduate studies, and then moving into the head role at KTH. Did you have any formal training for those roles at all? Yes, I, I, uh, um, um, I, I, I really like uh, these types of internal training programs that we have. Um, I started many years ago uh, with uh, different types of pedagogical training courses because I, I clearly thought that they were uh, very rewarding. I kept on learning new things. And also the pedagogical training courses, of, of course, used sort of new at the time pedagogical methods. So I felt that they were really inspiring. And I wanted to have more of that. Mm -hmm. And what, what came next? Well, they offered also... Uh, different types of leadership uh, courses and I found that every time you join a leadership course half of it is about leadership and the other half is about personal development so so for me that was sort of a, a, a way to use these courses to to mature and to start reflecting on yeah. who you are and what you do and so yeah. forth so I, I joined every leadership course that you could do at Uppsala University simply because I enjoyed it and I felt that I developed a lot. Mm. And then when I came to KTH, KTH also has this type of leadership program. So I've sort of joined um, sort of every type of leadership course you could do there as well. And and now, uh, which, which then in the end, I mean, the final step is that you go and do, uh, I went to INSEAD and did uh, their advanced management program for a full month, which is really uh, something that shakes you up quite a bit and, and gets you to reflect upon things and and at the same time, I've also joined now as mentors for that for others, and, and which is also a way of developing your leadership yourself. Yeah. Yes, indeed. What do you think are the personal qualities that you brought to the role that made it made these sort of leadership roles a good fit for you? And what were the personal development paths that were really important uh, in terms of carrying out leadership? So um, I. Th think that um, I have I think I find an enjoyment in seeing other people's develop that's why I think that the single most important and most fun things we do as university professors is PhD supervision 
Uh, I think that's what rewards me the most. You really need to, I mean, it's between two people. So so you really need to understand what they're doing. You really need, they need to make an effort to read and, and try to ask these questions to help encourage them, help them be able to to, to finish, uh, uh, but at the same time be, be critical and prepare them for, for uh, the hard reviewers that are out there that they need to face when they're ready. This is sort of what, what I've liked uh, the most about it. Also, similarly, the thing I like with management roles is, is maybe not what people would think, uh, because now that I've gone from being a dean to being a vice president, the difference in that role is that as a dean, I had staff responsibility for more than 400 people. But as a vice president, I have no staff responsibilities mm-hmm. at all. And, and people said, oh, lucky you that you don't have any staff responsibilities anymore. But I think that's the most rewarding part for me. I really like the staff responsibilities. I liked having these uh, uh, between four eyes meeting with, with staff and, and uh, trying to help mutually to solve problems so that everybody could develop. And I I thought that that was the most fun part of of my work, actually, much more fun than than, uh, working on strategic plans or managing uh, management group meetings or or, uh, these things that you need to do also as a manager. Mm. And typically, HR uh, issues is typically the the clearly the biggest part of, of all management roles, I think. Yes. And the literature around academic leadership also talks about managing people as the top area that many academic leaders identify as both the the key aspect of their job and the area where they need the most training. Yeah, sure. What were some of the practical skills that you brought to that? So you talked about what you did, but I'm interested to hear more about how you did it, your mindset, you know, what sort of approaches you use in that people engaging. So I think that uh, one of my backgrounds that I, I uh, use a lot in, in my leadership role or in any role, I would say, um, that I value highest of all is that I actually started out with theatre and drama and, and tried to do things such as that. Uh, when uh, I was uh, a teenager, that was my highest ambition. I wanted to be an actor or a director or producer and go into that type of thing and worked quite heavily with that. I, I read up on books on, on improvisation or books about drama construction and I, I played a lot of theater, I wrote a lot of scripts, I directed, I tried to do all sorts of things such as this. And then I went out into uh, sort of applying for theater schools and so forth. And, and of course, in that process, you, you learn a lot about yourself, but about others as well. Mm. And to me, uh, uh, that's the single most thing I use every day. I mean, I, I, I use that knowledge uh, without being aware of it, I think, that, that reading people's eyes, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, uh, also trying to watch what is happening from the outside, as you do as a director, in a sense, and try to sort of 
shape what is happening there and simply by the way that you phrase things or speak you could actually control the stage in a sense mm. and and there could be a stage even if you're only two people there and no audience there there's a stage there and i i i think that that background that made so much for me as a person as an individual so i i'm usually claiming that that i think that this drama should be one of the core subjects in school interesting interesting uh, and and you you pick pick up that all the time you do that as a, a lecturer or if you're going to do a talk at a conference you you can use that type of of uh, knowledge you can control your voice in different ways you you can control your body and and talk about the the body language and how you gesture and how you mimic and how you pause how you can how you can actually uh, create awareness by being silent and being ready to be silent for a much longer time than you usually would do. So, so I think that that's uh, if I would do a, a, a second PhD, I would have wanted it to do it in in drama related things because I think the the intersection between these two fields is so interesting. Mm. So that's a lot of what's often termed um, social emotional skills. That sort of awareness of self, awareness of others, and just understanding the impact of how you're physically, bodily present in the room, whether it's tense or aggressive or relaxed or the, the timbre of your voice or the pauses that you leave. Yeah. And being able to read it, read the, read the play. Yeah, happening. exactly. Yeah. But it's both reading what's happening mm. and seeing and observing and, and being able to categorize what is happening, mm. but also then uh, turning that into something that you do yourself. Yes, and I'm shaping, being aware of the choices that you're making and the impact exactly. they're having. Yeah. 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 I like the way you talked about doing that both on a one-on-one -on -one and, and in a whole group setting or yeah. even a presentation. Exactly. I mean, when you do uh, classes in improvisation, uh, I mean, if you've seen imp improvisation theater and things such as that, you, you, you see and you think they're very creative in coming up with how they, they sort of make the storyline continue and so forth. But there's clear rules on, on how you make an improvisation. How, there, there's concepts on how you you may lock people into uh, a corner where they can't get out simply by the way that you're interacting, that you need to follow to be able to sort of develop the story and and uh, th th these things also happen in real life all yeah. the time yep that's what fascinates me i think about it mm. so one of the analogies that's often used for people in that head role or the dean role because, because it's a middle you know uh, middle management in a way is mm. her about herding cats yeah mm. <laughs> so and had so geez, it seems like some of these skills are very much about the subtle herding of cats without them knowing they're being herded is it or is it yeah there's also uh, another sort of a strand of work around you know how to lead clever people of course it is i i um um 
There's a management book. Uh, I haven't been able to track it down, but but uh, uh, I think it was Esa Pekasalon and the the Swedish director who, who was leading the London or the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra at the time. He was writing a book about management from the role as a conductor and and writing about management from a conductor's point of you and uh, i believe that the title of the book or at least the title of a talk i've heard him uh, uh, speak about is leading artists mm -hmm. which is a, a bit like hurling yeah. cats in yeah. a sense yeah um i sort of felt that when when uh, i became a dean I, I i thought that i got some different viewpoints based on that leadership and I said that I would want to do a follow-up of his uh, book that I would call Leading Autists, <laughs> um, simply based on the experience that you have from leadership in academia. And, and it could seem like an insulting title in a sense, but, but I mean, clearly we have really brilliant people, uh, many of who probably most likely also have some sort of, of uh, uh, cognitive uh, special skills, uh, if I should phrase it in that way, uh, which makes you need to be even more aware on your leadership to be able to do that in a good way. Now, there's another aspect of leadership in academia that I think is, is uh, should be debated much more and and that's when you compare uh, leadership in in business or management or or even in the public sector to leadership in in academia and that is this concept of academic freedom and mm -hmm. um, academic freedom i mean it it basically what it means is that you, you nobody should influence you on what types of methods you use and what type of research questions that you choose but uh, uh, many uh, academics, and particularly the higher you get up in the academic career, would want the concept of academic freedom to be read as, I don't have a boss. Uh, nobody should tell me what to do, rather than that it is about uh, your research and, and the freedom uh, in relations to that. And, and that means that, that management in that sense becomes very complicated mm. because you, you're supposed to be a manager of people um, that are, of course, highly skilled. And, and uh, all of them, every single individual, are more skilled than you are in the particular topics that they, they're doing. But still, there's things that you can contribute to their development, uh, uh, even so. And, and this is something that I think is something that probably will change in the future, because I don't think it's a sustainable solution to have universities that are run completely in the leaves of the organization and where sort of the management roles doesn't have any uh, opportunities to, to steer or control uh, the way that things are happening. Interestingly enough, uh, I, I heard something said about uh, a president at the university uh, saying that when the president makes a decision, uh, it's considered as uh, a statement in an ongoing debate. <laughs>
and which is is uh, uh, really bad in a sense because that means that a, a president are not able to to make any decisions whatsoever and how can you develop and change a business if that's the perspective that you're having mm. but so, that's interesting that you said business because that's one of the critiques of what's happening in academia now is this corporatization of academia yeah but here i need to explain something here mm. because uh, usually they say that english is the richest language in the world uh, but when it comes to terms of bureaucracy Swedish is the richest language in the world, mm-hmm. and it, it it isn't. Uh, I mean, uh, the world has or English has borrowed concepts from Swedish as well. You have like ombudsman, which is a Swedish word. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a Swedish word originally that the word borrowed because it it uh, describes something that they didn't have a word for in English. And uh, in Swedish, we have uh, the best possible word uh, that we use. It's in Swedish called verksamhet. I think you can translate it into German. It sounds a bit similar uh, in German, uh, which is uh, best translated into English to business. But the problem is that business has a ring to it that it's about something commercial. Uh, but verksamhet uh, is is a concept. Of, I, I tried to, in my PhD thesis, translate it as work activity. But it's it's much more than that. I'm I'm working in in verksamhet. I'm running a verksamhet. What I do on my daily basis is verksamhet. It's a concept that captures all of these things. And the best way of communicating that in English is to, to talk about business. But clearly the Swedish word is much broader. But I would really want uh, uh, English to, to uh, uh, inherit that word because then it wouldn't sort of give that association to the commercial business. So I think that, yes, we use business the same word that can be used in a different context that would mean getting on with the business of doing academia, which is sort of our day-to-day yeah. work and keeping it running and, you know, all of the practical stuff. And then there's the uh, perhaps the more common use, which is business as in the organisation, yeah. Um, yeah, enterprise. Exactly. But that's interesting. So I will definitely get that word from you as well as a reference to that book and we'll put them onto the notes on the yeah. web page so that people yeah. can see it. Uh, written exactly. down because it seems like an interesting word. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so 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 that means that when when I'm talking about the business that we're doing, I'm talking about all work that we're doing. We're talking about teaching. We're talking about uh, management tasks and all yes. of these things. And and this word is excellent for for pointing at that without giving this association to the commercial side. Of it. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's an interesting tension then because. You're, on the one hand, there's this notion of academic freedom that has wide varieties of interpretation according to what works for the individual to fight mm-hmm. for. Um, mm-hmm. And there's the fact that we do need to keep our universities running and operational and we do need to conduct the business of academia, of delivering teaching, yeah. um, you know, having the, the committees that do the, the interviews of new candidates, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And... As a manager in your role, how did you deal with trying to navigate 
that boundary with people that you were managing and leading you know, in, and encouraging them to contribute and participate? Yeah, so so I think that there's uh, there's difficult aspects in 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 different uh, uh, um, leadership roles. Uh, usually, when you go a leadership course, you 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 go a leadership course on the individual management between two people and how you do that, that how you how you deal with tricky talks with people that may have alcohol problems or whatever it is that you need to deal with that that's a lot of courses for that and then there's courses for strategic management sort of for the very upper uh, working with those things but there's really not a course for middle management mm. and and middle management is probably the most tricky uh, side of management and I, I as I've been a middle manager in a sense because I've always had a manager yeah. uh, uh, above me yeah. and I've been managing managers I've I've seen this tension in in the middle management role which is interesting and it also uh, it works fairly well in industry with middle management uh, but there's things that needs to develop in academia when it comes to middle management. For example, if if the um, if the the president or the vice chancellor of the university uh, uh, takes a new development plan, and this is what the what we're supposed to do, then actually all managers underneath, when they phrase their development plan for their business. They should actually see how do we contribute to fulfilling the goal of the manager above. Um, yeah, and then when you put all of these different managers underneath and their development plans together, you should actually have fulfilled the the uh, manager above their, their development plan in a sense. So, so that decisions are channeled through. But what I see is is that there's sort of um, uh, this autonomy makes uh, a, a management meeting on the top discussing a tricky issue, discussing a reorganization or or distribution of funds or whatever it would be that is things that people have opinions about, and then you discuss it and eventually you need to come up with a decision. A decision that isn't uh, a unanimous decision. People may be against it, but you make the best possible decision. Mm. Now, what happens then with the middle manager? Usually the middle manager has been fighting for, for his or her group in the management meeting. And he, he, he or she may not have gotten their will through. So therefore, uh, they're sort of feeling uh, that they may be lacking in their obligation to, to bring further what's happening there and they needed to make compromises. So how do you deal with that? Well, I've seen many managers then go back to their groups and rather than saying, we, we had a discussion, we made trade-offs, we agreed on this and this is now that what we're supposed to deliver. I've seen that many managers go uh, down to their group saying that that I really fought for you and these stupid managers above didn't listen to what we said. So now they're forcing us to do this, which, which I completely didn't agree to, which is not the management spirit that you would have. And I would really want to see a, a, 
uh, a management course to help you to with the struggle with that role because it's a role that has contradiction in terms. You're you're fighting for your uh, subordinates uh, upwards, and then you need to communicate the the decisions made on top down in the organization. And this this is the trickiest thing uh, about management at yep. all, I think. Yep. And again, the, the academic research does identify the middle management layer as the most difficult leadership role within university structures for exactly those reasons. Exactly. And, it's, and you can in some ways sort of understand that the, the leader manager is trying to manage the relationships below them by saying, I fought for you and I don't agree with it. And, you know, but what would you suggest would be a, better way of doing it that both somehow delivers on their responsibilities to their managers and also cares for the agendas of the people that they're managing what would be a different yeah could we sort of role play out a different or play out a different way of giving coming back to the department yeah, the, the, I think there's many things that that you should know, uh, and I think that role play or, or drama actually makes you think think about these different roles that that you you play there. I think that uh, uh, when you're a middle manager, uh, you should talk much more. We we made a decision, we did this, we want the business to develop in this way and talk about the collective of management that that contributed to, to making that decision. But what what we're talking about or what I hear a lot in, in management and academia is that, that they say that, that he made a decision and pointing upwards and, and distancing themselves from the decisions that are being made. And actually, then uh, once a decision has been made that they didn't agree to, or or that was a compromise that made their own will not come through, they keep on fighting on that and not agreeing to. Well, we need to face fact that that now we need to make this reorganization, or or we need to strategically make the investments in this sector rather than the one that I I proposed originally, and then say, and then sort of uh, like that situation and and try to to manage based on on the the agreements made there. So I think speaking much more of we as management and making yourself a part of the collective making that rather than pointing finger to the management in that sense. But you also have another, you know, sort of overlapping circle of your role, another version of we, which is we, the department. Yeah, So sure. then is that separating you from your peers, from your department? No, no. I mean, in the management meeting, you're also talking about we, and then you're representing your department maybe in, in that type of discussion. Mm. And then you also... That, want to and and need to take a broader role of of being a, a management team that works together and talks about it in 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 that sense how, yes. you, how you you want things to to develop so there's different we here but as a manager of a group when you're standing in front of of them yes. uh, you you need to be the advocate for the the joint decisions that are being made and even if you didn't like a, a decision uh, you you your role is actually to make that happen yeah rather than than fight against a made decision in yeah. a sense so yeah. rather than it 
being the, the decision that is input for ongoing discussion that you, you talked about before. So you come back to your, your own faculty department and say, you know, we, the, the sort of university leadership team have made this decision to do X, do this restructuring. Is the next sort of statement of, um, you know, while there are trade-offs all around, this is, you know, this is the decision that we're, we're working for, for the best of the university. How do we make it work now? Yes, and then you need to start to reflect about uh, how can I tell the story about why this was made in such such a way because it's it's it, we're in the trust business right so we need to build that type of trust so that people can see that that different uh, views were considered and and uh, they they were taken into account and then eventually decisions had to be made and different trade-offs needed to be be made and and uh, communicate the the reasons by, behind that mm. so I like that that we're in the trust business, and that's yeah. a, that's a nice uh, way of thinking about your leadership role within this sort of environment. That you don't have the middle management uh, power, I guess, that people might have in industry. You said it was very different. You know, you can't just say, "I'm the boss." You know, this is what you're doing now, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Here, you still have to somehow bring people along with you, and that being open. And accounting for the process and making that process transparent and visible to generate mm. that trust sounds really like a great strategy. Yeah, but trust also works both ways. I mean, uh, we, we're talking about trust as we need to trust our managers, but we also need to have a, a business, again, like some here, in which uh, managers also can trust uh, the staff. Uh, to be able to work in this fashion. Mm -hmm. So you're building sort of uh, uh, an organization. You're actually building values uh, in the organization. And, and that's probably the single most important thing to do is, is uh, around the values that you're, you're bringing so that people feel that, that we're moving in this direction because we share a set of values in organi this organization and, and trust is then intimately connected to these uh, values, I would say. I love that. That's brilliant. How do you practically do that? How do you practically create this shape, you know, using your language of shaping, shape this culture around, um, you know, having the conversations that it can explicitly identify the values and then how they practically play out. What, what are some very practical uh, advice I, for people? Well, uh, there's many sort of general uh, advice that you, you of course can take in, but, but they're not un uncontroversial, all of them. I mean, the concept of openness and transparency is, is uh, a value that we, we, uh, all of us share. Uh, I think. But then again, uh, openness and transparency, you can't be open and transparent about everything. I mean, as a as a manager, you're also put in a role to take care of of issues uh, that you you're not even allowed to be open and transparent about. Yes. It can be staff matters uh, and, and uh, personal planning type of things that that you're you're doing with one individual that you can't be open and transparent about. But if you have generally the notion that that openness and transparency is something that should should go through uh, the the entire business that you're doing, uh, I I think that 
then you're you're usually on on the safe side but this openness also need to work uh, in in collaboration with trust so whenever we have appointed somebody as a leader we also need to trust a leader to take the wisest choices in relations to these matters we've actually delegated the, the task of management to this individual to do that and then we can't sort of interfere with every single decision that doesn't go our way because we don't see the full picture that's what we've been delegating to this person that we give a management role and therefore it's this trust working in in uh, that direction that i think is is uh, um, yeah, important mm. another thing that i think is is crucially important is uh, the notion of equity that that Everybody in an organization, everybody's point is equally important and valid. Even the I people know, who disagree with you. Yeah, 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 sure, of course. Mm. And uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I can see that uh, one of the things that I think many uh, organizations struggle with is the influence of students in your organization. That uh, in in Sweden, students have the the opportunity and the right to be present in many uh, or most of the different management groups that we have. Although that usually for some managers mean that you try to define new type of management groups that can work without meeting with the students, uh, just uh, simply because these are matters that doesn't concern them. And then you create some sort of different organization beside your, your official organization, which clearly do doesn't work well. So. I've, I've, um, when I was at INSEAD, I, I uh, got some input on, on that there's actually scientific studies showing that the more uh, heterogeneous group is, the better choices yes. you actually make. Yes. And, and uh, that, that heterogeneity isn't only in different academic subject areas, but, but it's actually involving every staff in, in what, what you're doing. Yes. You're involving students, you're involving the, the uh, appointed representative for, from your administrative staff also to be in, in uh, the, the management team. Um, which then brings me to the, the next issue that I've seen developing, and, and that is that there's a lacking uh, respect between faculty and administrative staff. Uh, uh, the, they, they're, uh, um, and here, here again, we have very great words for this in Swedish that doesn't translate to English, but, but they, there's a view that, that the faculty is those that bring in the money, that it's based on them that everything is built. So everybody should be very grateful for them. And all of the others, they're just overhead. I mean, when we're talking about them as overhead, we've de degraded what they are and what they contribute with. So I would say that every every a person that is employed within the organization uh, are equally uh, valid in that sense. And that is something that you really need to, to uh, struggle with. In Swedish here, uh, we uh, the word administration 
usually is seen as as uh, not a very prestigious word. I know that in other languages, administration may be seen. I think particularly in German, administration is is sort of seen as mm. sort of top of the organization in a sense. But uh, administration is a word that is used often for for sort of the the maybe the lowest in the income scale in in your university uh, the lower lowest in the the expectancy of, of uh, 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 how much they've studied to get these types of role but still everybody should be able to play in in uh, your organization on equal terms which i think is important because that everyone is needed all those roles are needed to make the work work yeah yeah sure yeah, yeah. So you've talked about um, openness, respect, equity, um, and it, these all seem like values that can play out at all levels within. So we've, we've been particularly talking about middle management in those more formal roles because that's you know, reflecting on your experience. But um, it seems like these are values that can play out at all levels of leadership, for leaders of research groups and leaders of projects and things all the way through the organisation. Yeah, and they should do. Mm. Do you have explicit discussions about this? You know, do, would all people be able to name, <clears throat> name these as important values or is it, uh, is it something that you grow more organically? Uh, yes, but, but you... you uh, in in some groups, we've actually been doing tasks in which we've been trying to come up with concepts that that we feel that that we jointly can stand behind and think that these are important values. Uh, but but sometimes you also need to trick this discussion in because for for many people and I think particularly for faculty that are hugely busy with their externally funded research project and the teaching that they're doing, many times they feel that these types of discussions are are sort of something that that goes beyond what is their main task of what they're doing, and they want to limit the amount of time they spend on these types of tasks not maybe not seeing uh, how it contributes to it so so therefore uh, you you sort of maybe need to trick that in to get that discussion mm -hmm. going. a few years ago we discovered uh, um, a lot of uh, uh, issues or maybe not a lot of but but enough to be able to do something about it issues in relate in relation to harassment not particularly sexual harassment, but but uh, to to sort of judging that people are different and 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 uh, and talking about it. Uh, I mean, one one professor uh, uh, came into a meeting saying that to uh, one of uh, the other staff working there that. Uh, um, uh, I'm earning double as much as you are, so I'm worth double as much. So, so when I when I hear that type of discussion, or, or, or when people talk about them valuing people differently based on on what they're earning or what they're bringing in, or, or, or so forth, I, I see this as evidence that we really need to work with these issues. But how can we work with these issues? Um, I mean, those that were mostly affected. Uh, by this and were contributing the most to this type of discussion, they said they didn't have the time 
to engage in these type of discussion. So uh, one of the things we did, we did a, a long project that, that went over a year and a half that we called uh, a sustainable work environment. Mm. Sustainability is a key concept that was in the the uh, overall goals of the university. So it was, was uh, something that was easier to sell. And we got external help to manage and run discussions on what this is and what it means and where people could actually claim what, what they were most annoyed about and what, what they thought they could develop and we could agree on, on uh, certain terms in relations to that. And even if it's very difficult to, to measure the the effect or, or progress that you're making, I could see on the the annual work environment survey that the the percentage of people that that uh, claim that that there was harassment in the organization went down and the credibility of management uh, went up in the organization. So I could see some development. And particularly, this was something that affected PhD students a lot. The PhD students were those that felt that the work environment was the worst at the organization. So we did, uh, we did uh, very Sorry, interesting... can I just... Uh, they felt it was the worst for what sort of reasons? Well, if you go through the different uh, questions you have at, uh, at the, uh, the survey that they're doing, they, they're talking about it that the uh, world-leading professors that are supervising us is uh, giving this view that if we want to have an academ academic career in the future, we should work 70, 80 hours a week to be able to deliver this. So they felt a very strong pressure they didn't feel that the professors actually recognized their work. They didn't feel that they read what they were doing sufficiently. They they re kept on rescheduling the supervisory meetings because other more important things came mm -hmm. up. And there was a number of different things that, that uh, uh, people were complaining about. And these were things that we could discuss and bring up, but it didn't cause any change in the organization. It, it was still uh, considered bad. So one of the things that we did that I've, I was very amused by, and uh, maybe that's also because my the theater background was that we got a theater company to come in. And this theater company, they interviewed PhD students and they interviewed uh, uh, supervisors. And then we, we gathered for a full day with all supervisors, no, no PhD students, but only all supervisors in the room. And then the theater comp uh, company uh, reenacted what they perceived from the interviews uh, to show us. And we were laughing and saying, oh, wow, this is really silly. And, and then they stopped everything and saying, we're going to do the same thing once again. And as soon as you hear or see something different or something that could have been done differently to, to arrive at a different result, you say stop. And then we start discussing that. So they, they reenacted it and then they said stop. And, and then somebody uh, said that, well, I think that in this situation, you should have handled it in this way instead. And then the theater company said, well, please come up and join in the theater and play this. And the rest of the actors kept, kept playing their role. And, and then you could sort of see how, how it went in the wrong direction. And people could really feel and be a part of this in this joint fashion. So it was, 
it was uh, really showing uh, because afterwards we said that everything you heard was based on truth based on a true story uh, so afterward people were really sort of uh, seeing that this was for real mm. they 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 were also seeing that how difficult it was because when they kept on doing things to recover from the situations the actors made them fall into to different types of problems in, instead so so it was problematic and it was also great fun. People were really active in doing these kind of things. So I, I think that trying to come up with these things that, that are fun, they're mm. efficient, they're social, they're based on really true and, and problematic situations. These are activities that you can do to, to really yeah. uh, help you develop in that yeah. sense. That was probably way more powerful than having someone come in with a PowerPoint presentation presenting the thematic analysis of their interviews with the PhD students. Of course, and, and a lot cheaper, I would <laughs> say, to do as well. So, mm, Yeah. So did you see changes in the survey for the PhD students' feedback yes. after that? Yes. Yeah. Well, we did a lot of activities with yeah. PhD students because uh, a lot of the problems that PhD students had was relating to time management. Mm. They, they they never uh, did any relaxation at all. Mm. They all, always had their, their PhD work uh, hanging upon them, even if they were going to watching the television they had their laptop in their knee and they could really never relax so so we were working also on actually getting people in with their powerpoint to talk about and, and providing tools that you can work to get more relaxed and and to work with your own uh, uh, attitudes to your work and and actually also helping to lower the uh, expectations of yourself to, yes. to be able to survive in yes. a sense. But also then working with uh, uh, the supervisors. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. Yes. In, in sort of saying that it's not reasonable to communicate that the expectancy of, of uh, working with you as a world-leading researcher is that, that you need to dedicate this amount of time and, and you really need to think about how you communicate this expectation in a way because uh, saying that, that it's perfectly all right that you – uh, only work for 40 hours a week, but you should know that when I did my PhD, I did and so forth. That doesn't simply work. So you really need to, to embrace this situation and talk about it in a different way. And also role model. Yeah. But this is kind of problematic because uh, uh, role models is usually... Uh, the stars that you want to have as role models, uh, right? So, so you, you, for example, we've done, we've had a lot of activities in terms of trying to to uh, increase the gender equity in the organisation and, and particularly to get more female students. Uh, so we've done all sorts of things uh, in relation to that. So we started out by by sort of appointing role models that were where uh, people, female role models that could show that this is what you can do and what you can become. So we invited sort of world-leading researchers from our groups to talk about this and, and look how, how lucky I was when doing all of these things. And, and you can become that as well, which didn't uh, sort of work out as good as 
getting role models that were a bit more ordinary in a yes. sense uh, yeah. and, and that they could identify with and seeing that that was also a, a, a great outcome of, mm. of what they're doing. So so role models shouldn't be sort of the, the uh, top, top people in, in no. a sense. And I'm also thinking about role modeling in terms of uh, you can say to your student, you, you know, you shouldn't be working 70, 80 hours a week. But if you're doing it yourself, that's not being a good role model for them as well. So how do you, you, know, how do you embed those values throughout the organisation that um, everyone's well-being is valued so, and, so and important? Now you're, yeah, now you're coming to a question that, that I also find very, very interesting. And, and Because uh, when I worked at Uppsala University, I had a, a, a head of department that said that uh, uh, you should never send an email outside of business hours. Uh, so that was his way of sort of managing this. And, and in all good uh, uh, good aspirations of what he wanted to achieve with this, but what we discovered after some time was that every Monday morning we got 10 emails from him. So he had sort of installed some sort of filter that would show that we, we didn't see that he was working. But, but of course he was working over the win- weekend and then, then he, he d- delivered things. So, so uh, then, of course, that didn't work. And for a lot of us, we said that, that I really want to send emails late at night. I really want to work off these things uh, um, uh, in the evening so, so that I maybe can, can do something else in a sense. So I, I think this freedom that we have, the, uh, another type of academic freedom in, in usually choosing where and when we do our work is, is something that we really should treasure and, and and, and treat with dignity in the sense mm. um, that we do that. So I think that in Sweden, uh, given that it's a darker country than, than the majority of the countries in the world, uh, in parts of the year, we tend to have long holidays over summer, which I think is fine if people are away for a bit more weeks than you should do because they're working much harder in other ways mm. of the year. So yeah. this, so so we have this... Uh, 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 Again, there's a Swedish word that isn't easy to translate into English here, here, but we have a work time that is based on confidence, Mm. confidence work time we we talk about, that that we we don't care about whether you're at work or not at a specific uh, hour of a day. We trust you to deal with this uh, properly. And, and then again, you ne- then need to be able to deliver on that trust. So you need to be able to deliver your results. And therefore, I think it's it's much better to work with people's way of managing their own Time work. Time, yes. And yes. I mean, I I like to uh, uh, watch my emails the last thing I for- do before I, I go to bed. Because if then uh, the meeting in the morning is cancelled, it, it's going to give me uh, an extra uh, good opportunity to to uh, to do that and, and uh, sleep in an hour more if, if that's happening. I like to do that. Uh, and maybe I even respond to, to a few of them at, at that, that point. But it's my own choice. Ex- and I yes. think that 
the the yeah. fact that it is your own choice yeah. is the important thing. And that's a theme that comes out in many of the conversations we've had in this podcast series with people, the importance of it being your own choice and different strategies work for different people. Yeah. And the other side of that is recognising that you're working in a social context with others and it's about managing the expectations that I may choose to send an email in the evening because that's when it works for me to work. But that doesn't mean I'm expecting you to be sitting there and responding immediately. But if because I do, you're extremely happy because then, then we can work out things. And, and instead of going and dragging on, oh, I should send Geraldine this and, and I don't have the time now, I can sort of handle it mm. quickly at that yeah. point as well. So. But it's, it's the recognition of that flexibility and freedom yeah. is, is a and, you know, so the same – Work patterns or behaviours can be seen, but there are different expectations and pressures around it. Mm. I think is the important thing. Where you know it's, you're not working seventy hours because that's the expectation of your supervisor. Yeah, and um, in my research, I deal quite a bit with uh, uh, work environment and work environment problems, and, and particularly digital such uh, and. Uh, Email tend to be uh, what most people think is their biggest work environment problem. Uh, but it's uh, often not uh, considered when you sort of do, do surveys on your, your work environment uh, in, in a sense. But I, I just hope that I'm going to live long enough to see how the next generation that is not doing email mm. at all how work will be for them because i think that that's it is the curse of our generation uh, we're the email generation that was stuck under mm -hmm. that and and we're trying to impose that on the next generation as well but i think that soon they will realize and discover that that email is not the tool for the future to to manage that and maybe that's going to change them the attitudes and values in the organization yeah. as well do you include email in your sustainable work environment or your annual work environment survey? Uh, the survey is is controlled by an outside company, mm. so so and and we partly uh, have the opportunities of, of bringing in issues such as this, but but I think that there's generally lacking maturity to consider the digital things as a work environment mm. thing. But this is something that I'm trying to advocate and I'm doing also some research collaboration with union organization in which they're actually uh, viewing the our different computerized tools and how they influence uh, um, our work environment. I think that one of the big, big changes also that is happening is now that we have everything in our laptops, we have internet connection, we have a mobile phone, which means that we bring the work with us wherever we go, in a mm -hmm. sense, which is something completely different to when I did my PhD, I actually, um, I didn't have a laptop, I, I actually brought home the big computer in my car to be able to continue working nights on it because mm -hmm. that what was what was required for the last uh, days before submitting it and so forth. But otherwise, you worked at work and mm. you were free at home. So the having everything on your laptop gives you that freedom to work when you choose to, when it works for you. And it's just yeah. it's managing that so that it doesn't bleed into areas. What do you, how do yeah. you manage that for yourself? How do you how, could you talk a little bit about how you 
define or set up boundaries or not and manage that flexibility? So I, I think it's, it's a lot about uh, how uh, happy and satisfied you are with, with what you're doing. Mm. Um, and if you're happy and satisfied with it, if you feel uh, that, that you're, you're uh, doing well, I don't think that there's a generally a big problem if you're working uh, too much at periods. Mm. I know there's been other periods in my life that I've maybe worked less. I mean, when you had young children and so forth, there were other things that caught uh, the attention of, of this. So uh, I, I think I, I tend to work a lot, but, but I never say I work too much. Uh, and and I, it's when people add that word too that, that, uh, uh, it, that it becomes a problem. Uh, because then, then they're claiming that they're working more than they would want to work for yes. this work. Yeah. And then also if you feel that you're not in charge yourself of, of this, you're not in control of, of uh, setting that, it's differently. But I think that we as academics, it's, it's always our own choices how many tasks we take on. I mean... Uh, if you you take on yet another conference that you will be reviewing for, you're taking on on yet another uh, uh, group that you will be sitting on at the university. You, you're sort of taking on different ta tasks such as this, or you're you're setting up goals that I I want to write one more paper this year. Uh, that's when you're sort of bringing up that pace, and I yeah. think that we need to work with setting reasonable uh, levels of what we're doing in that sense. So what criteria do you have for setting re those reasonable levels for yourself? If someone came and asked you to do something, how would you make the judgment about whether you add it into your mix or not? Uh, I uh, First of all, I would see if it's something where uh, I think it gives me something and it gives the organisation something. Um, I, I can clearly see that sometimes I take on tasks that I do not see that they give me very much and I see that they're also problematic, but I see no other options. I mean, uh, if you go into particularly tricky research organizations where they need to have a representative from management and you clearly see that the only one that could do it is, is yourself. Maybe then you say yes to something where you really feel that maybe I should have said, said no to that. But it's really exceptions. I, I would rather say that, that most of the tasks that I've done, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've I feel happy about. I've, I've selected them. I've I've, uh, uh, um, I've chosen them because I think I can contribute something, and I think that they have a value of it. But if you see to the amount of meetings you go to, uh, because this is one of the other work environment problems we have, we go to too many meetings. Mm. Why do we go to all of these meetings? Uh, many times I think that people go to the meetings simply because there might be something that could be of importance to me or 
there might be a, a situation where they would make uh, decisions that may influence me, and therefore I need to be there to make sure that, that these things aren't happening, then then it's not a good good situation. So I think we need to sort of think through how we, we uh, do meetings in, in that way so it becomes reasonably much. And there, of course, I think I, I could have, Probably over the years have done a lot better having fewer meetings, mm. um, uh, but uh, generally I think that the most rewarding meetings you have is between two or three people, and and the discussions that you're having that you feel are are really developing uh, something. These really really big meetings where you gather twenty or more people in is uh, I mean you could easily count the cost of such a meeting. And, and we should probably much more judge whether uh, it's a good uh, use of people's time to do that. Mm. And, and there, there I have uh, things I should develop more in relations to that, because I, I, I think that, that at the university we have a lot of meetings that, that is not really uh, contributing and making efficient use of our time. So when you were dean or head of department, did you have regular meetings? What what sort of meeting schedule would you have now if you had your time again? And how would you run them? Uh, I, uh, the, the advantage of being a dean, I think, is, is that you're usually setting a lot of the agenda. I mean, you're, you're, you're setting when you're having meetings. And I, I usually took that there was one day a week where I tried to collect all of the meetings on one day. Because there's meetings that you're bound to have. You you have to have management meetings. You have to have board meetings. You have to have meetings with the union. You have to have meetings with the student representative and so forth. So I tried to gather them all in one day. And and um, uh, But what I could have done that I didn't do was maybe to prepare the meetings better in terms of... of maybe writing all of the material in beforehand and expecting people to read that so that you could have much more efficient meeting. Mm -hmm. But I think that the schedule simply became too crowded to be able to do that. Yeah. And maybe I wasn't good enough at delegating the preparation of all of these tasks sufficiently. But also I saw that, that a lot of the time people came to the meeting and they hadn't opened the agenda before they came to the meeting. Um, we experimented with a, a few different ways of, of trying to make things more efficient. Like we, we had uh, um, an, uh, a Google Doc as the, the minutes of the meeting and everybody got access to and could type in their questions as we went along. That meant that it, uh, we didn't need to have a secretary that sort of spent uh, uh, turning their handwritten notes into protocols uh, or, or formal minutes afterwards, but mm. we could actually check it and work it in that sense. Uh, that was good from that perspective. But then on the other hand, it, it also uh, created less dynamics at the meeting as everybody had their laptop there and easily could go into their emails in, instead. Yes, yes. And even... Even writing the document, there's that loss of eye contact and engagement with the discussion that's actually going on. At, exactly. Yeah, always yeah. trade-offs. Yeah. I, I could keep talking, but I'm just aware of the time and we probably need to be wrapping up. There are so many interesting sure. other things I wanted to talk about. 
Um, but we in should finishing do the second up, one. We we <laughs> certainly could. So, are there any? Is there anything in particular that we haven't talked about that you would just like to mention or bring up? I I mean maybe it's a topic for for um, another talk because it's a long talk. But but I, uh, as you know, I've also been going in, into this engaging with uh, politics and mm. with. The, in commission and all of these things, which is kind of maybe different to what many people do in their research. But but I think that, that there's a lot of uh, um, interesting experiences out of what you can do there. And uh, uh, I think that generally we have, every citizen have some sort of hostility towards politicians. And, and they, they don't feel that they're, they can identify themselves with them in a sense. But having now for the last uh, six or seven years been worked uh, closely to some national and to some also international politicians in this, I've, I've uh, gotten a great admir admiration for, for their skills, for their interest in topics, for their dedication to wanting to develop and, and uh, contribute to the society and for their also humility and openness for getting knowledge from mm. academia. Uh, many politicians are extremely curious and wants to learn more from academia, but they don't know how to get access to us. And, and we're not very good at communicating with them yes. generally. Yes. So this is a topic that we could discuss at length, mm -hmm. how you do that and how, how we could think about that, because it also brings in the issues to selection of research topics that we're doing. Are we sort of, are we doing the research that we think is the one that contributes to our career development? Or are we doing the things that contributes to changing the world, in a sense? And, and that, that is a topic that, that I have quite a few thoughts on and, and that we could discuss at length. Uh, so I would love to set up another chat to do that. That would be really excellent. So you're welcome. Thank you for your time today. This has been a really, really interesting and thought-provoking conversation and from different perspectives that, you know, around the whole leadership area that I think is important. Yeah, thank it's you. Important and for shaping the environment that we all work in. Yeah, and, and I mean, people may have opinions about what I'm saying and so forth, and I would be very happy to, to on, on uh, between two people person, sort of continue discussing, sending emails and talking right. about things if, if people provide feedback so I will put a link to your web page on it on the on the podcast web page as well for people that will have contact information great great thanks thanks Jill. thanks, Jan. thanks for an excellent call you can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com you can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm -hmm.